Welcome to episode 23 of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I am Kevin, your host. Today you're tuning in to a special edition of the podcast. This is my first ever crossover episode with another podcast. Today I'm going to be joined by the hosts of Cutting Class Podcast, Jess and Joe. You'll hear more from them in a minute. They were kind enough to read through the book that is the subject of today's episode and to take time out of their busy weekend to join me in interviewing today's guest. Today, the three of us are talking to Mark Bury. Mark is a lawyer, journalist, and author from Canada who holds a PhD in media history. He has written over a dozen books on the history of Canada and the Great Lakes, as well as on contemporary issues facing the field of journalism. His latest book, Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit Radisson, profiles a 17th century adventurer from his early adulthood living among the Mohawk to his travels to England where he befriended King Charles II and survived the Great Fire of London to his being shipwrecked with Dutch pirates in the Caribbean. Radisson was a fur trader and an entrepreneur, as well as an admitted cannibal and a trader to nearly every power in the New World. He was a founding member of the Hudson's Bay Company, which still does business today, some 350 years later, and he is the namesake of the Radisson chain of hotels. It seems that if there was something worth doing in the 1600s, Radisson did it. Now let's meet my co-host for today's episode. All right, and I'm joined today with uh, two guest hosts, Jess and Joe of Cutting Class Podcast. Uh, welcome, fellas. Hey, thanks for having us. Hello Very glad to have you. Um, I've been listening to your show for a while. You do some great history. Uh, tell us a little bit about Cutting Class Podcast. <laughs> We're two high school history teachers, and we just try to look at any and every story that we think would be fun and interesting to look into. So it bounces all over the place from presidents to, you know, recently an episode on uh, the DeLorean car. So it's it's kind of all over the place. How did okay. you guys start this podcast? So we... We, when I say we started the podcast, Jess decided he was going to start a podcast, and he brought his computer into my classroom one day when we should have been working on something, and he just started telling me the story of uh, General Santa Ana and his fake leg, and I just listened and made smart aleck comments as he was telling me the story, and then for some reason we just kept doing it and kept recording it, and that's sort of the accidental birth of <laughs> Cutting Class Podcast with two hosts. I needed someone. I needed a, someone with some good jokes as I went. Well, that's a good format. You guys are a lot of fun to listen to. It's it's um, what do you call it? Historical comedy, I guess. Yeah, historical edutainment. Edutainment. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's the buzzword. I think is a hashtag edutainment. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive into our conversation with Mark Bury. The you can't make this up history podcast. Bring history that you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the stranger than fiction and super unique mark burry welcome to the podcast hi thanks for having me on uh, glad to have you all right and you're joined today by my two guest hosts just and joe of cutting class podcast hi guys Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. Glad to have you. Uh, so we all read your book, Mark, uh, Bush Runner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit Radisson. And um, I guess to start, can you tell us how you discovered this uh, really interesting guy? Uh, it, it, he's like the 1600s version of the Dos Equis guy. 
Yeah, he is. And I'm, and he, he, he's interesting all his life. Like most of us, our lives are a fall apart near the end, but he keeps going. Um, I looked him up for some reason. I think it was when I was doing my PhD and I was a, um, a tutorial assistant, um, helping, helping a university professor. And I, I thought, oh my God, this guy's just everywhere. He's, I looked at all the places he'd lived and the things, that, and looked at the times that he was in, in North America and in Europe. And I thought, wow, that's, those are really interesting times. And I did a little more research and I put together a timeline of his life, which is actually in the front of the book, and a proposal for the book. And um, that was like 15 years ago. And a year, about two years ago, I heard from a publisher saying, you want to write that Radisson book? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And off I went, off to the race. Okay, and you found you found a lot of material on him. He he left a lot of uh, written records for you to work with. Yeah, the, the great genius of this guy is his ability to learn languages. And one of the languages he learned was English, which is the only language that I speak with any sort of ability. And he wrote a lot of stuff down in English, and that made my life just so much so much easier. Uh, he wrote down the first half of his life story in English. Uh, in very good English, and, and gave it to the King of England in, in uh, 1666, somewhere in there. And that survived and was found 200 years later. Well, that's a very fortunate find, because you know, not often do you have that amount of detail on, on one individual's life, unless they're you know, a member of the royalty or something. And, and Yeah, and his, his uh, account of his life was just about to be made into wallpaper. And somebody took a look at it and went, whoa, that's, that's sort of interesting. And it had, he had written the account of his life for King Charles when he was stuck in London during the Great Plague and he kept working on it for a while. And it got, I think it got swiped by Samuel Pepys, the diarist. Uh, he, he was a big, big wheel of the Navy and he was also a real hoarder. And it was among his papers and this is where, this is where that part of his life turned up. Then in the 16, uh, 70s, just the early 1680s, he wrote down sort of the second part of his life in French and gave it to the King of England, and that turned up about 15 years ago in the in the archives of Windsor Castle when the when the Queen of England started letting people go in there and do research. And some uh, dentist in in Belgium named Radisson talked his way in there and he found it. And so he, so he left these two big accounts of his life. And he also left a ton of letters back and forth uh, to France, to England, uh, to the Hudson Bay Company. He had this buddy who was a, a big, a big wheel in the Catholic Church and also in the in the court of France, in the in the in the king's court. And he wrote to that guy quite a few times, usually trying to get money from him, trying to get money out of the king or a job or something. All right, Mark. So uh, Radisson spent. Um, the majority of his time in New France, up in Canada, especially his early life. And uh, Justin Joe wanted to ask you a few things uh, about that part of the book. Yeah, I, I, I don't really think he did spend most of his life in Canada. It was really spent most of his life in America. Um, and he, because he, he spent a few months in New France, then he got grabbed by the Iroquois, and then he uh, spent a couple of years with them, and he and went down into Ohio, probably northern Tennessee, Indiana, uh, Michigan. Um, so, and then his second trip, he spends all his time on the uh, on the American side of the Great Lakes. So, so he's really an American story. It's strange that he's ended up as a Canadian story, maybe because 
Canadians don't have a Daniel Boone and a Davy Crockett and stuff, <laughs> and and they they wanted to grab somebody who was halfway interesting in a in a coonskin cap. So you know he he's he if you're in Minnesota, you know who Radisson is. He's the founder of Minnesota uh, in everybody's mind, but but for some reason he just falls through the cracks in America. It's that foreign sounding name. It could be. It could be the fact that he's French. Um, LaSalle gets kind of remembered. There's lots of things named after him. Um, he's a, he's another real uh, character from the French regime. But uh, yeah, I suppose people think of the French, they think of Quebec. Uh, but he he really was somebody who, if, if you read his stuff, it's like beach by beach. He's talking about the beaches of Lake Michigan and, and the cliffs of Lake Superior as he's traveling. And it's always on the on the American side. So I think he's He's sort of your, um, I don't know, your uh, early migrants into into the United States. Yeah, you said earlier that he wrote, of course, he wrote a lot of his story in English, and then you said later he wrote a, a large part of his life story in French. Yeah, and that's just because the the, the uh, king of England at that time, uh, James II, his mother was French, and he spoke French as well as he spoke English. Okay. So he probably just felt a little more comfortable. Uh, might have also been. Um, because of the sort of paranoia of the time, they were both Catholics. England was very anti-Catholic, so he was able. To, I think they might have just sort of been talking in a bit of a code. So, okay. um, but has, he was, he, and he spoke like I think eight languages. I worked it out at one point. Has that part of his story that he wrote down in French? Is there an official translation of that into English? Yeah, there, there is now. There was one that was done by a scholar in Canada who took the uh, took the, the material that was found by the living Radisson relative and, and translated it into English. Okay. So we have all, all that stuff translated into English. Thank heavens, because my French, quite frankly, isn't that good to, to do that kind of old-fashioned French in, in the English translation and not have academics be all over me. So pretty early on in the book, it gets pretty spicy when Radisson and some of his buddies go out for a bit of a hunting trip, and things go south really fast, and he seems to be caught by the Iroquois. Um, it, how common was it for you know a European person to be adopted in this way? He's the only one I could find. Uh, the, the, uh, they would adopt other Indians, but they would never adopt the French. I, I think they didn't think the French would ever fit in. But the thing with Radisson is that he is so adaptable. He, he gets grabbed when he's about 14. He goes down fighting with like 20 or 30 guys tackling him and still gets a shot off with a shotgun and shoots one guy in the leg. And within a few days, he's trying to learn their language. And, and like I said, he's very smart that way. He's cooking for them. They just... So whatever he was coming from, he must've been pretty bad. Like his, Going back a little farther, his family dumped him into into Quebec from France. They put him on a ship, one way ticket to Quebec, to stay with some half sister that he didn't even know. Is that Marguerite? And then, yeah, and then a few months later, he gets grabbed by the Iroquois. So he's pretty happy about the whole thing. Like he, I think he convinced himself that he would be the guy that they would keep. And so he just gets to work. He starts cooking. He puts the, like spices up their food. As frying things, which I think that was not really a way that they cook things uh, themselves. Um, he talks about how they he was trying to paddle and working really hard, and they show him how to do it right so it wouldn't be quite so much work. And eventually, they they're sort of halfway 
sure they're going to keep him. And then by the time he gets to the the uh, village where they their sort of main village, which is outside of Albany, New York, it's pretty clear that they've already decided that not that nothing bad's going to happen to him. And I went through a lot of of historical records, and I could not find anybody who was ever adopted. There were some that were spared, and they've been ransomed back and that sort of thing, but to actually be brought into that culture and given a name and, and made part of a family, no, that's just not heard of. Yeah, yeah. I think at, at that point in the book, you uh, also go through some pains to tell the readers about how the Mohawk would, uh, if I was picturing it right, they were painting him partly red and then partly black to... Right. Uh, black is your... your you're a goner and red, we're going to keep you. And, and they're sort of sending that signal out, I think, to each other right. saying, take a look at this guy uh, and, and make up your mind. We might just keep him, but, you know, we might just do the same thing we do to all the French when we get them and that's just, you know, kill them. It's like old jelly bands, just uh, labeling well, people symbols. I, I think in a way they saw, well, French people as dangerous to their own community because yeah, of course. They, couldn't speak, they couldn't speak the language. They didn't know how to get along. They didn't know how to work. Um, they, they, they couldn't be trusted. They certainly didn't seem to buy into the idea that, that the Iroquois were sort of decent people. And um, and I think in his case, they just saw someone different. And I think they liked his spunk. I think the fact that he, he was willing to take on all those guys and, and they had seen him hunt and he was really good at it. And um, I think he must have been fairly good looking. They, really, they were really big on looks. So that, that probably helped him along. Yeah, he and must have been the, the sexiest Frenchman. If he's yeah, the only the one. Eight. The only one. Uh, women, children that they grabbed, no. They didn't keep any of them. <laughs> uh, they grabbed the odd priest, and those guys got like sent back, missing a few fingers or whatever, but um, but usually in, in return for something. But to actually move him into it with a family and give him the name of somebody who died and, and, uh, and try to make him into that person, no. Yeah. Yeah, he replaced really their son, tricky. right? Yeah. So they, they were losing so many people to disease and war and stuff. But what they would do is, is that if they found people that they thought would be good adoptees who could take the place of those people, they actually kind of half imagined, half created them into these people. And uh, with everything that they, they had, including sometimes they were they had like a chiefly ranked, they were hereditary um, she's and that Radisson's mother, the adoptive mother, was a Huron, and she'd been adopted, and she was a, a clan mother, which is a really powerful person in, in that culture. So, uh, so these these adoptions were 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 quite serious, and they were a really big deal. So he he becomes the the son of a clan mother and a war chief, and they're they're loaded like like in terms of, of wealth, they 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 buy him European clothes from the Dutch trading post. A couple of days uh, walk away. They buy, they give him a little gun. Um, they give him all kinds of, of of things that he can trade and stuff. So he's just living the life of Riley. Considering that a few months before he'd been scrounging around in a besieged fort in Quebec as as sort of the cast off son of whoever back in France, and they are a mystery. I, I think he he had a good thing going, and I think that's why it's so shocking when he seems to have the first of many changes of heart and uh you describe this moment where he just kind of throws all that away yeah he, he actually he does it once where he 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 and a an algonquin uh, indian murder uh, um 
murder some, some people that are on a hunting expedition with to take off, and they almost get back to the French colony and get caught. And he gets dragged back, and this time, it's not clear at all that he's going to live. But his parents, they, they bail him out of the, of the murder uh, rap, and he stays with them uh, for another, I guess, about a year and a half. And takes part in a in a raid down into Ohio, uh, down deep into the Ohio Valley, so that he gets the he he wins their trust back, which is really something. In Europe, if he had killed somebody like that, he'd he'd have been executed. Actually, oh, my, a lot of if I were to do that, there's no way my parents would stick up for me. <laughs> no, no, and and they must have really paid off the families. That's what they did back then. Was that yeah. if you if you if you killed somebody, your family gave gifts enough gifts to to sort of um, soothe the, the, the ruffled feathers of the, of the victim's family. So you can imagine how expensive that would be, and they, they paid it off and got him out of this trouble, and, and he stayed, like I said, he stayed with them, but loyalty is not one of Rasmus' virtues. He, he has very many. He's a really interesting character, but but he's, he's about as loyal as a, as a tomcat. He, he just, when, he's, when he thinks it's time to go, he, he goes. Now, I thought one of the yeah. most interesting parts of of that story, when he uh, murders some of the Mohawk and then is captured and brought back, is this, you describe this this practice that the Mohawk had of almost like running, walking this gauntlet into the village, and that they have um, the switches and the thorns, and they're going to be flagellating yeah. people as they walk by. Yeah, and big sticks sometimes, and sometimes they'll just lay you out, and, and it's not always something that people survive. He, he, he gets, he gets snatched out of that but then he still gets taken into the village and 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 is very uh you know he gets tortured he doesn't they don't torture him in a way that would kill him but at one point he's he's tied up and some old guy sits down beside him with a with a pewter sucking the blood out of his thumb well yeah that was a little kid carves his his thumb open starts sucking the blood out the old man lights up his pipe and then jams radis's thumb into it a few (laughs) times that's right there was there there was another oh yeah and then another guy uh, heats up a, a, a bayonet and shoves it through his foot. Um, now that's got to hurt too. So they 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 made it really clear like what would happen to him, you know, if you if they were going to take this all the way. But they also I think took him right to the edge of 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 terror and and death, and then said, look, uh, we're going to let you off the hook, but this is it. And, now, uh, and in a way, a, sorry, this is a little off topic, but when I was reading that section where you described the the gauntlet, for lack of a better term that I can think of, it reminded me of an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Did have you ever watched that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so you know Worf, the Klingon. Yeah. Okay, so there's an episode from season two where Worf describes this ritual where. Klingon warriors would walk this gauntlet and other Klingons would stand in a line and whip them and flagellate them as they proceed. And it yeah. was to show... Uh, it was something a Klingon wanted to do to show their toughness and their ability to deal with pain as a warrior. And I know that's and not that's, what you were trying to conjure up, but when I read that, I immediately thought of that episode and I thought, I, I bet you those writers maybe doing some research came up with the idea by something from the Mohawk tradition. You know, they might have because um, the warriors that were doomed, uh, they ran the gauntlet. Like if they picked up a French you know, young man who was going to be killed or a, 
uh, a native young man, native warrior who they really didn't want to adopt. Maybe they were too badly injured or they just didn't think they could trust them. It became a game. How much the warrior proved his bravery right to the end by running the gauntlet, taking the hits, being tortured without screaming. And the other side of the coin was that the Iroquois were trying to make them sort of break his people at the end yeah. of their lives, right? And this is a lot of intense psychological stuff happening, um, mind games uh, back then. And uh, uh, they were they were doing this to Radisson quite a bit. And it, it becomes like a like a boot camp in a way, or or a sort of Stockholm syndrome situation. Yeah. Where I, I think really the Stockholm situation, uh, Stockholm syndrome situation, really does fit. But they also put him through this sort of boot camp of of taking his old identity away and making him into a new person until that that identity is the only identity he's got. And we see that the way. Military people are trained. Yeah, I was thinking of the Marine Marine Yeah, shave your head, call you all kinds of names, uh, except your own, until you stop being a human being and a piece of crap and become a Marine. And then then they pat you on the head and say, yes, you did make it. You're you're good enough. And then you spend the rest of your life life walking around thinking that you are good enough, in fact, better than everybody else because you actually survived that. And there's also all kinds of like professional schools and things. I'm a I'm a lawyer by training, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of that in law school and stuff where you really get treated like a piece of crap, and then at the end they give you a diploma and say, "Yes, boy, you 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 made the cut." See that that may be why I'll never be successful because I I can't be bothered to put up with any of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not was... that good at I'm not that good at it either, quite frankly, and uh, I I do tend to resist that kind of thing. I think you have to resist it a bit. Also, though, if you're going to prove the point, right? You don't want to be too much of a of a pushover, uh, too much of a suck about it. You want to push back a bit. And, and Radisson did, you know, when when people came along and they wanted to fight him or wrestle him like other kids or whatever, he 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 just you know fought them. Um, he was he had to show all the time that he was tough. Yeah, no. The first uh, time one of the students comes up to me and bites into my thumb and tries to suck the blood out of my flesh like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that'll be my last day as a teacher. <laughs> yeah, you know, you might haul off and drift them, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I taught for a couple of years, and I think the worst I ever did was profanity, but there were times. I thought it was really cool. You you kind of describe. I get the impression that the Iroquois are sometimes kind of demonized as these these really barbaric people. And you know, when you hear these stories of the Gauntlet, it's like, oh, that's that's so awful. But you, I think you take a moment to kind of put that in a historical context when this is also the same time where Europeans are you know routinely tortured for believing something else or just being a little weird. Yeah, it, it you know it's a, it's if you take that the Gauntlet. Just this is a story, and you tell it now, and you think of the world now and the gauntlet. Then it sounds horrible. If you if you take that in the context of what's going on in European cities, uh, this is not particularly shocking to people like Radisson. They see people, you know, in Europe, especially brutalized all the time, being whipped, being branded, being put in pillories, and having people throw rocks at their heads, uh, being hung, drawn, and quartered, which happened all the time in Radisson's life in, in London when he was there. Uh, it's it, it, it's 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 a it's a different world. It, we're we're the same species of creature, but culturally we're quite we're all quite a bit different. Even you know, indi- you know indigenous people, First Nations people, Indians, whatever you want to call, 
uh, the people who were here before 1492 are different today, and we're different today. As people of European descent, African American descent are, are different from the ancestors of that time. So I think to extrapolate that to anybody today is, is kind of ridiculous. The other thing is that the Iroquois—they're in a situation where there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them have died in the last 50 years before this happened from all these epidemics and things. They've got colonies that are coming up along the side of them, the Dutch, the, the French, the English. They don't know what's happening in, the, in their world. Everything that they have had and, and everything that they believed in, um, they're, all their technology is all top centurion. And they've got missionaries trying to convert them. They've got armed enemies around them. They've got weapons. They've, everybody's got these new weapons. So you think of this as this is a time of revolution, just as it's a time of the religious revolution in Europe. And Iroquois are trying to make the best they can of it. And one of the things they're trying to do is, is at least keep their population numbers up with loyal people. So this is the whole adopt, adoptive thing. They also want to instill some fear in everybody around them so that they're safer because there is this sort of general war going on between the, 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 the Indian tribes and also from, at time to time against the, against the whites that are, who are settling along the coast and up the Hudson Valley. And so I think one of the things that we just took, take a look at is say, did it work? And it, it did. Look, all these other groups of people, you hardly ever hear about them because they're all gone in epidemics or... Uh, they lose in warfare, or basically they're displaced. The settlers come in from Europe, but the Iroquois make it until the end of the American Revolution. And the only reason that they don't even make it farther than that is because some of them picked the wrong side and backed the British. And that's pretty amazing when you think of, of five tribes living together in prime real estate, just inland from the new colonies as settlers are coming in. And they hold it together politically for, what, 200 and almost 300 years from the time that they first made contact with, with uh, Europeans. You know, because they actually do it in the 1500s. So, so I think we have to look, we can look at it and say, well, they were successful. The, 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 the psychological tricks that they used or psychological uh, workings that they used actually helped them actually saved them and the Iroquois are still a very cohesive nation of people today living in you know in Canada living in the United States they see themselves as the Iroquois they still have their own government they have a, they still have like lots of land they're very prosperous they uh, they communicate with their own families across the border as if it hardly even exists so I got to give them some credit for that yeah, that's a pretty amazing story, uh, especially at the beginning, his time with the Iroquois, or Iroquois, yeah. sorry, I'm saying it wrong. Yeah, but, and then uh, he has to get out of Dodge. Yeah, yeah then, then, he, then he gets out, and he's going uh, to head abroad. Well, he, he, he goes to the fort at, uh, at Albany, and he's recognized by a French, there's a French soldier there working for the Dutch. This is, at that point, what we think of as New York, uh, well, basically the Hudson River Valley, and Manhattan was a Dutch colony, part of New Jersey too, and but they got a, a, a French soldier there, and he sees Radisson, and he says, "Are you French?" And Radisson just about croaks, and uh, and admits he is. And after a while, the soldier gets into Radisson's head, and he says, "You know, 
one of these days the French are going to go after the Iroquois, and if they catch you in there among the Iroquois, you're a dead man. Uh, you're a traitor. You're a traitor to France. And Radisson the first sort of sloughs it off, and you can tell that he, he thinks about it for a week or two, and then he decides, yeah, I never thought about that. I'm in trouble. And he gets he, he takes off from the Iroquois, goes to the Dutch, goes and stays in early Manhattan. There's like 2,000 people there. He writes about that. Goes to Holland, comes back to North America, and there's peace between the French and the Iroquois. They, they've signed a treaty, and he would have been totally safe. He didn't have to do any of that stuff. Well, I know that uh, Kevin wants to take over and talk a little bit about his time in the Caribbean and Europe. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so when he comes back, well, I, I guess I'll just pull a question directly out of your book. Um, it, it's an interesting question with a lot of historical significance. Uh, what was a beaver hat? A beaver hat is one of the most ridiculous things you could ever come across. It's a hat made out of lint. It's not made out of fur. It's what they what they would do is they would take the, a beaver fur and they would strip out the, the parts of the, the hair that makes what we think of a beaver fur is sort of nice. And underneath is this fluff. And they would scrape off the fluff, but they would mix it with mercury and stuff. And they would make felt out of it and they would press it into these sort of uh, three musketeers type big flashy hats. And what it really was was the equivalent of a really fancy watch today. So if you if you judge a person by their Philippe Petit or their, their Rolex watch or whatever, that's the way a person was judged back then. Everybody wore a hat and the flashiest hat, the, the hat that showed that you really arrived was the beaver hat. So basically Radisson was in the lint business, the beaver lint business, and it took him all over the Great Lakes. And then after he ran out of luck in North America, he took went to Europe to take a shot at starting this Arctic trade. I yeah, remember so an he actually, at, oh, sorry, with his brother-in-law. Yeah, his brother-in-law is everything Radisson isn't. He's like a narrow-minded. He's he's really uh, he's he's much more of a crook than Radisson. He he bugs the uh, the Indians about their their religion and he tries to convert them in a way that's really annoying by scaring them. He lies all the time. He, well, one thing about Radisson is I don't think he was an, uh, an ungenerous man. But his brother-in-law was. So when there's time, like suspicion there's going to be famine, the brother-in-law starts hiding food all the time. And then the two of them run out of luck in North America because the Iroquois have started another war and they're blocking the fur trade. So they, the Radisson and his brother-in-law go to Boston, which is English at the time, of course, and they end up sailing with the English with the, um, English with English diplomats to to England to try to set up this trade up into Hudson Bay, up into the Canadian Arctic, because that's really where all the, the good beavers are. And instead of taking these gigantic canoe trips where you start from from the from the East Coast or you start in the St. Lawrence River and go up gigantic rivers into the Great Lakes or, and then keep going and going and going, the idea was you just sail up to where the Indians were and just meet them on the beach and load your stuff up and, and sail it back. And uh, and it act, that actually worked, but it took a lot of a lot of effort for these two clowns to 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 pull it off. And they have incredibly bad luck and weird luck all the time. They're trying to do that. So now, in that brother-in-law, uh, he kind of flips 
uh, on the French and uh, sides with the English in this in this context and heads for London then? Well, the, the two of them do, rather because everybody hates the brother-in-law. The, the, uh, the government, the French government hates them. The, the, um, the, the priests, the missionary priests hate them. And so Radisson takes them with him to, to England, uh, even though he, he probably couldn't speak English, and, and nobody liked him in England either. And when they get to England, well, first of all, on the way to England, they're ca- captured by Dutch pirates who dump them in Spain. And this seems like, like bad news, except that by the time they got from Spain to England, they missed the worst of the Great Plague of 1665. They arrive in, in London just at the tail end of it. And uh, one of the things that happens is that the word gets out that this guy, the brother-in-law's Grossilier, or they call, everybody called him Gooseberries. The that Lord he's of the Gooseberries. Lord of the Gooseberries, and he likes that. He, or uh, Captain Gooseberries, or the Ad, Admiral Gooseberry of the Ottawa River, all kinds of oddball names like that. Mm. Yeah, but he, he, he really eats that stuff up. But everybody gets the, gets the, the word that he's... He's totally corrupt. So spies are, are trying to like hook him up for all kinds of plots. People are trying to like win him over to, to, to change sides again and again and again, which he does. And Radisson kind of becomes more and more like the brother-in-law as time goes by to the point where he really becomes an aggressive um, personal traitor to most people, except for his wife, who's a, a, the daughter of a pirate. Now, I found it interesting in, in the book. Um, he manages to really ingratiate himself with King Charles II, and he kind of makes a career of playing different people and factions off one another. Um, yeah. What, what does he do in his stay in, in London? Well, he arrives in London during the plague, and the court, the king's court, has moved out into the, into the countryside. So he goes out there with them. And he's got a, he's got sort of an in with them who, who introduces him to the king, and the king likes him. And one of the things the king does is pay him to write this write his down his life story. Now, this is a time when England is in a real state of flux too. They've just restored the monarchy after cutting the king's head off fifteen years before uh, King Charles the first head off, and a lot of the people who are in power have been in exile for a long time, and they're all freebooters and swashbucklers too. So, so they. Guy like Radisson fits in a lot better than you would have say a hundred years later when they're all very proper and stuff. Um, this is a court full of, of people who have had a lot of adventures themselves. But he arrives at a time too when England doesn't rule the ways, and the Dutch have put a naval blockade around England for years. So he's stuck there. He's stuck there for year after year after year. And so that's what he's writing down the life story and making these connections and trying to put together a couple of ships to go out and make these, these trading deals with the um, with the with the, the native groups along the shore of Hudson Bay. And it takes him it takes him five years before he's finally able to get out of England to do that, pull it off. But it and, turns and out while to he's be there, he witnesses trade. the Great Fire of London. He sees the Great Fire of London, and he's really lucky to survive that, and not not because he's he risked being burned to death, but because the English um, have always been kind of hard on foreigners, and what they did was they blamed foreigners for the fire, and mobs and mobs of English uh, people of, of Londoners were going around killing any foreigners they could get their hands on, and somehow these uh, these two Frenchmen survived that, and 
we don't really know how, but they lived on the edge of the city. They lived around um, where basically, well, 10 Downing Street is that area of on the on the edge of London, and like they 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 somehow dodged the mobs. Might have been because Radisson could speak English. Might have been because of, of their powerful friends who were able to hide them, but. But they see that they see the fire, they see the, the plague, uh, they see the the English having to sign two really humiliating peace treaties with the Dutch after the Dutch sail up the Thames and into the Medway and 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 seize the best British warships and take them back to Holland. I, I one of the things this book does is really flip your idea of what Europe was like back then. We think of you know, England as England at the time of the of the American Revolution when it's ruling the ways and it's a really solid, proper society uh, in the in the 1770s. But a hundred years before that, it was a mess. It was it had gone through religious revolution. Uh, Parliament was just asserting its supremacy. Parliament had cut the king's head off, and the rest of the royal family had had to split. And and were literally some of them were literally making their living as pirates. And they at, when Radisson arrives, they've all just come back. And they're they're starting to run England, and they're starting to build this England that we think of as the England of of the time of of the American Revolution. But but at this point, they're still they're still in Three Musketeers land, and and a guy like Radisson, who would never never fit in a hundred years later, fits in quite nicely then. But England is weak and broke, and everybody's looking for an angle. The, the so-called rich people that really don't have much money. They're looking to make, find easy cash. And this, this plan to sail up into the Canadian Arctic seems like a way to make good money. And if it doesn't work, they lose a few ships and a few dozen men and, and carry on. And so he ends up um, becoming a, a founder, essentially, of the Hudson's Bay Company, but is never really well, to uh, uh, enjoy any riches from that. Yeah, it's you know, it's his idea. It's say like a tech company where you have an idea for something, but you're 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 making a wage. He makes a wage. He never he never gets any stock in the company. He he doesn't get a piece of it They're like everybody else. Everybody who's got a connection at all gets a uh, gets some shares, and the shares become very very valuable. And and the um, the, the dividends on them are sometimes a hundred percent a year. So two hundred uh, two hundred pound share earns 200 pounds a year sometimes sometimes other years 100 pounds but these things are, are real money makers well radisson's making 50 pounds uh and he's doing all the work and it's like i said it's, it's his idea he's the guy who's sailing across the ocean time after time after time and that in itself is a pretty dangerous thing to do not a lot of people make it across the, the ocean a lot of times and uh so he's it's capitalism, but he's a guy with no capital, and they're not going to let him in the club. That's the one thing they do is they really do keep him out, keep him an employee all of his life. And then after maybe 10, 15 years of constant changes of management, they kind of forget about him. They don't remember that it's it was his idea that he had much to do with the company, and by the end he can't even they won't even hire him to be a night watchman. Um, it's it's kind of shabby how they treated him, and he ends up having to sue them. But then he also goes back and uh, works for the French for a while too. So his his ability to change sides comes in handy when things start to go badly with the Hudson Bay Company. 
Well, yeah, that's a that's a theme throughout the book. Uh, certainly, he has uh, loyalty to uh, himself, and that's about it. Uh, and he, yeah. he goes over to the French and ends up sailing. Um, is it with a, a French uh, attack squadron towards the Caribbean? Yeah, yeah. Um, he he joined up with a, a a group of French Marines and a French naval fleet that was going to pick off all the Dutch colonies in the Caribbean. And they went to Tobago and they got that one and they were going to go to Curacao, but they were sailing at night off the coast of Venezuela and they were, the French fleet, which was most of its main Navy and about a hundred pirate ships were all traveling together. And the pirates started sailing into an area of coral reefs and small islands. And they fired off their cannons as a warning. And the, French Admiral, who doesn't seem to have been the sharpest knife in the drawer, decides he's going to hoist all his sail because he's being attacked. So the French fleet puts up every stitch of sail it's got, and it sails right into these islands, um, blasts into them, ripping the bottoms out of their ships. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sailors and marines die. Most of the pirates survive, and Radisson ends up stuck on this rock for like three weeks. Now, a couple of things about Radisson. One is he, he can make do. He's good at the bush and stuff like that. Another thing is he's a practiced cannibal. So if things get really bad, there's always pirates to eat, if nothing else. And he is at least as tough as any of the pirates in the Caribbean. And, but what, but all of his money that he'd had, he'd had uh, quite a bit of cash uh, with him, was on the ship, and it's lost. So he he, he spent a lot of time was heartbroken about, about his lost money before he gets off this rock. And that's the kind of life he had, was that there were all these disasters around him. He always survived. And he even managed to score some of that money back from the French government. But uh, but he's... I'm able to tell the story of this bizarro French fleet destruction because of him. It's one of the most covered up naval losses in history. We have no idea how many how many sailors and, and soldiers were lost because the French government covered it up. But we do know that uh, there were what uh, I think thirteen ships, and all the survivors were able to make it back in two two surviving ships. So they must so have we're lost pretty sure an awful he didn't lot of people. Eat anyone, right? Pretty sure. <laughs> uh, there was these ships that were that were shattered up on the rocks, they, they did have supplies in them and stuff. The, the French were starving and the pirates were feasting. Maybe the, the pirates are keeping some of the French away from the from the food that was in these, these shipwrecks. Uh, but if Radisson had to eat a pirate, he had no qualms about that. Uh, there were he, there was a time when he was on a war party with the with the with the Mohawk, and they ran out of food somewhere in Indiana and ate a woman. And there was another time when he was on his way up a river in Canada where they got into a fight with some uh, Mohawks and he was with these other uh, uh, tribes. And they killed a guy and they ate him. So, yeah, he, he also, he'd kill your dog and eat it too if he was hungry, which, which he actually does in the book. So, uh, so pirate, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't put any money on the pirates in a situation where if it's like Radisson has to get by, he See, that's always reassuring because you can always make more people so if you have to eat a couple it's okay yeah you know they're pirates right i mean so they're a little <laughs> tough but it's um, a sustainable there's resource lots, there's lots more it's not like there's a shortage of them yeah exactly it's a surplus 
And, you know, they'd understand. They really would. Like, it, it's nothing personal. It's strictly business. But he, he, he didn't join with them anyway. At least his loyalty to the French survived to the point where he got on the ships with the rest of the French and sailed back. But the fact that he was once he was on dry land, I would have definitely put my money on Radisson to, to find food, uh, eat anything. Literally, the, the guy through his life just eats all kinds of... It's one of the things that, that I talk about in the book. Anything that I've ever eaten that's really weird, like muskrats and beavers and things, I actually talk about what they taste like, or moose and bears and stuff. I mean, all that stuff. Uh, I haven't eaten pirate, and I haven't eaten any other human being. Uh, I suspect Radisson would have eaten the birds. Uh, there's a um, I, there's a, there were these big birds on the island called boobies, and I'm sure he would have eaten those without any problem. So uh, I think in that way he wasn't in too much danger. Well, whenever you get around to eating pirates or boobies, you've got another book idea. <laughs> there we go, yeah. Um, I'm not sure about the boobies. I think that's been done to death. But uh, yeah, um, you know, 24 Ways to Cook Pirates. Uh, not only sounds like a great book idea, but also a, a, a Home and Garden TV show. You're going to need to add some citrus to those, though. Start with Captain Jack Sparrow, because I think, I think the world's had enough of, of Johnny Depp. Uh, I would agree. Captain Jack. So. Some people have suggested that he'd be good at playing Radisson, but I don't think so. I don't buy the idea that Radisson was like a Johnny Depp. I think he, I think he was sort of more sly more skilled and uh and i, I think it's a, a bit slicker than, than a johnny depp type so we were trying to describe radis's personality um he's he's not he's not a fool he doesn't make a fool of himself but he's totally badass he, he seems very sly, calculated I thought, I thought you meant sylvester stallone and i got really excited for a second i said yes i will go see that version so I, I think, well, Radisson wasn't as big as the Mohawk. It's pretty clear that they thought of, like, of him as a, like, a little tough bugger. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I've, it's sort of a game in Canada now. The, the book is doing very, very well up here. And uh, one of the things that people ask is who would play him um, in, a, in a miniseries? Because the thing just screams miniseries, even though it's a very sort of egotistical me to say it just just the way his life is in these is in these chapters is it's like one adventure and then another adventure and they really seem to be episodic um but who would who would do him you have to have a guy who looks like a sort of like a, a like a native person um but uh, and who's quite handsome and who's really quick on his feet I'm going to so, put my hat in the ring for Gary Oldman. He is great in everything. <laughs> yeah, Gary Oldman. Well, Gary Oldman could do it if, was, if Radisson was a little old lady. Um, <laughs> a James Franco in his younger days, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, we but, were uh, looking at like pictures of him trying to O'Hara. decide who he looks like. You know, he, there's a time in the book when, when he's going through a, a, a Dutch village and he's actually passing from Mohawk. So I think it gives you a fairly good idea of what he looks like. All right, Mark. Well, while people wait for the miniseries uh, to come out, <laughs> if someone wanted to read your book and learn more about Radisson, um, and you have you go on to his sunset of uh, of life and some of his um, later adventures, uh, where can they go? Where can they find out, uh, find a copy of the book, and where can they find out more about you? Well, uh, Amazon.com has the book, and um, what they can find about me. Um, the stuff written about me, I'm all over the internet, I suppose, if you want to Google me for, for, for good or ill. Um, I have made many friends and 
some non-friends in Canada, and I suppose that shows up on my my Google stuff. Um, the Amazon.ca page has a lot of stuff about the, 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 the what people have thought about the book in Canada, and I know that you know Americans aren't really really put a huge value on Canadian take on things, but I, it gives people a pretty good idea of where the book uh, where the book fits in, and uh, and there's a, you know, the, the feedback has been great. The uh, newspaper and, and, and media coverage has been great, and we just launched the book into the states. So some, I think it'll probably start off in in bookstores in the places where Radisson went, like Ohio, Michigan, New York State, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and uh, but it is definitely for sale on Amazon.com. It, it's not a, an expensive book because it's it's a soft cover bound book. Um, it's a, it's like a two shot read. If you're a f- fairly fast reader, the uh, story moves along nicely, you know, and, and, and I think Radisson's a great, a great American story because in a lot of ways, he is a real American. It, it, he's a, he's a, he's a, a driven, uh, entrepreneurial capitalistic person who's, uh, who's, who's like says basically to hell with the class system, to hell with national boundaries, to hell with anything. I'm going to go out. I, I got this, these ideas. I'm going to do them. I'm going to live my life the way I want. And I think that would be something that would resonate with Americans. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's essentially American on anybody. So yeah. I, I think you did a fine job and obviously your scholarship shows on, you know, every page it's very detailed and, it does, it does flow, you know, really quickly, but you can tell that you put in a lot of work on this, and I think it shows. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so well, much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. And Take Justin care. Joe, thank you for co-hosting with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our special crossover experiment. Uh, This was something that was a lot of fun to do. It's been in the works for a long time. I think it turned out really well, and it's something fun I hope to do again down the road. If you are interested in checking out Mark's book, Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit Radisson, look down below in the description of this episode in your podcast app. You'll find a link. And if you're interested in checking out Cutting Class Podcast, I highly recommend Jess and Joe's show. They're always finding some quirky topic in history that is endlessly fascinating. Uh, For example, their most recent episode is about President Lyndon Johnson's um, genitalia. Okay, so it's not completely about his genitalia, but it plays a prominent role in how LBJ psychologically manipulated people to get things done. And of course, if you're interested in non-presidential genitalia-related history, they have that too. For example, they have a great episode on Pepsi-Cola's fleet of submarines in the 1980s and why communist countries love to mummify their dictators. Cutting Class Podcasts can be found on anywhere you get your podcasts, and there is a link to their website down in the show description as well. And lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or you've been enjoying the show for a while, pop on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, and please leave us a five-star review. Your reviews are incredibly helpful in getting the word out about the podcast. All right, that is it for today. I will see you back here in three weeks on September 10th.